Awesome. Hi, Serena. How's it going? We were just talking about the three TDs that you don't want to experience. Technical <laughs> difficulties, transmitted diseases, and transitional dilemmas. <laughs> I think with our audience, I'm sure people have experienced all of those at one, one point in time. So we experienced one of those TDs and technical difficulties, but we are here now and hopefully everything is going to go smoothly. The audio... The conversation, the uncovering is going to be exciting. So yes. my name is Olivia Eden. This is my co-host, Christina Sarmiento. And we are here today with Serena Kelly, who was also a member of the Children of God. Her experience is quite unique. And uh, I think we'll be going over some never heard before information about the cult because she was born and raised with the leader, David Brantberg. And we'll open the floor to you. But I wanted to ask you, Serena, first of all, can you tell us like a little bit about where you were born? Yeah. And thank you so much for having me on. It's such an honor to be here and I'm so excited. Oh, same, same, same. I'm too excited. I was too excited to even go mention that. <laughs> I think the computer was too excited too with all our technical yeah. difficulties. Yeah. My name is Serena Kelly. I was born in Manila in the Philippines in Berg's house. My parents are Alf and Sarah Kelly. They're well known in the group and especially my mother for being in top leadership. I grew up with Berg and moved to Japan at four years old. And from there, I was separated from my parents and Berg was still in Japan at the time. So I still saw him periodically and then moved to Brazil at six when our families completely separated. So first Six years of my life, I was around Berg and his inner circle. Okay, so four years in the Philippines, two years in Japan. What part of Japan? In Tokyo, right outside of Tokyo called Tatayamashi. What were those two homes like? Well, in the Philippines, that was the home. That was Berg's compound that he lived in with Karen Zerbe, Peter Amsterdam, who is now the leader of the group with Karen Zerbe, my parents, and a lot of other people. I was raised with Ricky Rodriguez, who is Berg's adopted son, as everyone knows, Techi, who is Berg's adopted daughter. And I was raised along with my older sister, Davida. We were kind of like the four chosen ones, as you will. My, my entire birth and my mother's pregnancy with me was all documented in cult publications. So there's the Life with Grandpa series for children where they talked about baby proofing the home for me. Publication called Lifelines details the entire very gruesome details of my birth. <laughs> I don't know why. And then they had other Life with Grandpas that talked about the way that I was raised. Just to give everybody a little bit of context, there were homes in 120 different countries all over the world. Each home was autonomous and operated independently under its own democracy. So everybody over the age of six 16 had a vote, unless it was financially related, then it's 18 on up. So depending on like who was running the home, who were the voting members, each home could look very, very different. Now it wasn't supposed to look very different because we were all supposed to be following the same principles and guidelines, but each one was extremely different situation. Although some of the homes, I mean, you had the same feel, like you would go in and it was like a big extended family that you had never met before, even if you had just gone from the Philippines to Japan, right? So like, for instance, Serena, right. did you just move the entire core group to Japan or did you go into a new situation with new people? Yeah. So keep in mind too, that the top leadership homes were secret. Nobody was allowed to see them. Nobody even saw pictures of, and no one saw photos of me or my family. They only knew us by artwork. So we were completely secret. 
So then when we all moved to Japan, we moved under cover of darkness, as is typical for the group. We were always running away from something. The cops were getting hold. There's this big compound with a bunch of foreigners there, you know, so we'd always be moving in the middle of the night. And we ended up in Japan, which at the time was the largest home in the Family International. It had about 300 members. So I went from being very exclusive home. There were maybe like 30 people in Berg's compound to going to a house with 300 people. And Berg was in a totally separate house with Ricky and with Techi and Zerbi and a few of those other people and my father. That's when I was separated from my father for the rest of my life was when I was four years old. Wow. And yeah, he stayed how with did, Berg. How did that feel for you to have to be separated from like your brother, Ricky? you know, and Techie, did it feel like they were getting better treatment? Like, how did that feel having to be separated? It felt isolating, to be honest. You were raised with the same three or to four people for the beginning of your life. And then you're separated and you're thrown into this house. And mind you, I was still considered law, which was a term in the cult for secret. It's just a secret society. It's a cult within a cult, basically. The leadership was really a cult within a cult. And I was not allowed to tell anyone who I was. So at a very young age, I was taught to lie, not only to the outside world, but to the other cult members themselves. So we're talking about very covert grooming of a child like you can't tell anyone who you are at Saud. You also can't tell anyone who you are with these other 300 people. You're just Serena. You came from God knows where. I don't even remember where they told me I, I came from. Nobody knew who we were there. It was all secret. So I oh came into- a massive, yeah. a massive weight for a child. For a child. To bear all of those secrets. Very similar to, mm. I think, a child who is sexually molested and is told, if you tell anyone, I'll kill you. Exactly. So this stuff happens on all sorts of levels. So you're coming into a house with 300 people. It's not house. It's a compound, really. The groups of children that you're with are like 20 to 30 kids and you don't know them at all. So the only hope, my mother was in leadership as well. So she went to some other house. There were like four houses on the property, the big main house. And so I was separated from my mom when we got there. And the only thing I really looked forward to, I was seeing my dad and my my dad was with Berg in another secret house that nobody knew about. Are those stories from the life of grandpa about specifically the little things that would happen to you? Did those actually happen or were some of them fabricated? I can't say that they all happened. My memory is quite good, but it's, you know, it's not perfect. I can say that I was used a lot as an example, you know, for the other kids, like this is how we should act. So let's build a narrative around this thing that may or may not have happened. You know, the egg skin bandage thing that my yeah, mom made exactly. with, with uh, the sister, that actually did happen. And we okay. tried backstory is that my sister and my mom put an egg skin bandage on it. And so that became like the new way to heal wounds in the it cult, became one of the most um, famous. which we legit did all the time. But any other thing, like my cult name was Mary Deer. Everybody knew me as Mary Deer. And Berg named me that. He named me Serena and he named me my legal name as well. So Frederica. I did not know that. Interesting. So, uh, so you were under yeah. the, the guise of three pseudonyms or two at least. Three. And I, I was raised as Serena. I do like the name, but it's basically, I was taught to live three lives. 
you know, a legal one where I'm like out in the system where I'm in the cult and then another one where I'm in cult publication. It was a lot of layering of personalities and lives that I kind of had to deal with at a very, very young age. That is incredible. So what is like one of your earliest childhood memories? Well, the Inberg's house, I have a lot of vivid memories as a child and unfortunately They're all pretty sexual. Berg's house was basically just, for most of the time, a lot of drunken orgies around. You would see. What did it look like, the house? The house was massive. They always lived, this is another thing that a lot of people don't know, but I think it's becoming more public now, is that they always lived in massive mansions. I grew up like living with pools tennis courts. Berg's house always ate like amazing food. When I got to Brazil, we started eating, you know, the crappy moldy food that people would give to us for free. But in the Philippines and Japan, gorgeous houses. We had a pool with a sunken in living room in the house. The pool came up to the house. There was a glass wall. So you could see people swimming through the wall by your living room, like mansions, mansions. Which and wasn't uncommon. Uh, like there were, especially when we had big Congo homes, they were really big. And a lot of them were really nice. Like the ones I lived in Guatemala, so nice. Remember? Some of the like, nice. Yeah, I love that home. Yeah, yeah that was it. Yeah, amazing. those houses were amazing. Yeah. 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 It just depended on who was running the show. Exactly. Know? Yeah, it really depended on that, you know, the the financial situation of each home. But in general, all the WS homes, which is short for World Services, the top four homes in the cult that did all the publications and did all the artwork for the cult propaganda, all of those homes were always mansions. And in the compound in the Philippines, Berg actually had a separate house on the property called the Swiss Chalet. It had a triangular roof and it was like a log cabin like they had in Switzerland. And that was like palace, as it were. He had a throne in there and everything. Didn't he call the toilet Um, his throne? Yeah, the toilet was his throne as well. He had all kinds (laughs) of thrones. (laughs) Okay, so let's go back to the drunken orgies. So So there was actually alcohol involved, which, by the way, for the rest of the group, it was like two glasses allowed max, right, a week. Or was it like that when I was young? I don't really remember when I was little, but that eventually... I don't know. That was the rule later on. And also, the rules didn't apply to Berg. Nothing applied to Berg. He also talked about, you know how doctors are bad and none of us like we all had horrible health care right we never went to the doctors we were always super sick Berg had a personal dentist in his house who would come sit in the dental chair check his teeth like there is nothing none of the rules applied to Berg he drank alcohol all the time we were having parties eating all you know all kinds of cake alcohol was flowing my parents admitted to me that they were drunk when they named me and that's how I ended up with three names so are you serious oh my god Serena what the fuck why don't you quickly tell our audience why he was able to live such a lavish lifestyle. Yeah, absolutely. All of the other homes were made to tithe, give a percentage of all their income and send it to Berg and send it to these top leadership homes. And the idea behind it was like, we're providing you with the word of God and we're giving you such useful information. Without us, you're nothing. You know, Berg was basically, he made himself as a God in the family. And it was genius because nobody had even met this dude. Yet people were like, yes, you know, like, oh, 
we better tithe, you know, the word of God. We can't live with Berg, our savior, our prophet, our king. And I calculated back in the day, I, these are very, very old calculations, but from percentages, like just from an average home, three to 7%, they were raking in $300,000 a month from the homes. So that gives you an idea of the crazy amount of money that this cult, which was trafficking children, was living off of. And meanwhile, all the other houses in the cult were living in abject poverty. A lot of people, like when I went to Brazil, it was basically going through the back of stores, digging through garbage, had a tiny little house, rationing food, begging on the streets, begging on the streets. They called canning because we literally had opened empty giant cans of beans, dumped it out, rinsed it, put little pictures on the front and went begging on the street. This is the stuff we did while- at stoplights. At stoplights. Young kids. Young kids, 15, yeah. 14 in these super dangerous countries. Like I did it in Mexico City with my yeah. girlfriends because we were the pretty ones that could go out there and make the money. And it was just like, yeah, anything could have happened to us. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And then we would our 14% faithfully. And so then there was also, you had to get tied, uh 14% and then 10% was seed money. So then that was, you had to set that aside too, which was, that was actually smart because that helped the homes to like manage their finances. Mm-hmm. So to repurchase the products that was making them money. So yeah. it wasn't like they could just spend all the money and then they wouldn't have any more money to buy more tools. Tools were like the poster. <laughs> right, yeah. and videos <laughs> buy and the propaganda. Right. And it was um, a genius yeah, system. That we were I mean, giving kept all of these homes afloat. Yeah making money. And then it gave him like this palatial king lifestyle full of drunken orgies. So let's talk about that. Yeah. It gave him the ability to live the life that he wanted, prey on women, prey on children, groom children all the time. You know, there was a very vivid memory that I have is I learned to swim at a very young age at the huge pool and the adult women would take turns watching me in the shallow end of the pool or in the deep end as I was diving while Berg would be having sex with all the other women at the other end of the pool. And they take turns in watching the in the pool. Yeah. This is the type of stuff that I was exposed to life as a really, really at a young age all the time. What was that like for you? What was your re- like thoughts? Was it like, this is normal? Like, no, as a child, you don't know how to formulate like this is not right. This is bad, but you feel it, right? Like, you know, in your body, like something's not right. I feel uncomfortable. And that's kind of how I felt my entire childhood was I don't feel safe. I feel uncomfortable. This is not comfortable for me. So I developed a really bad habit. We'll probably go into this later on as well. This is something I just connected recently. Yeah. With uh, biting my nails as a young child. Mm -hmm. And it was my way to inflict pain on myself to distract me from these very, very uncomfortable situations that I was in. So I could focus on the pain of biting down my fingernails and having them bleed. And I would, my body would be focused on that rather than like all of the craziness and the sex and the pedophilia and the abuse and everything going on around me. And that's something that you and Christina have in common. What sort of things do you connect with or resonate with that? Like, because I know that it was the same very sexually charged environment that you were raised in. I twirl my hair and I suck on my tongue constantly. So I would focus on that. I'm trying to stop that. It's not happening. And then I also had eczema. So I manifested eczema to the point where if you touched me, I would crack and bleed. And then at night they would tie me up. 
like they would bind my hands and my feet together and keep me in a sleeping bag and, then and my a straight jacket and my mom would come in or the mom that took me and say you love me you're never going to leave me and she would say that over and over as i slept so i manifested that because if i looked ugly on the outside no one would want to touch me you know like ew what is that it didn't work at all i felt the same thing uncomfortability knowing that something wasn't right and i was the only person that ever really spoke up about it and then i got tied to the shitster and the black sheep and that i was the liar and that you know i do it for attention self harming a lot and writing was the only thing that i could do and then i finally realized after someone told me no matter what you say or what you do no one will ever believe you so you should just lay there and take it that was my uncle i was like 17 He was trying to give me cocaine and giving me wine, and he pulled out a porno mag. He's like, "Which girl do you like here? Which one would you want to touch?" He was like, "You know, you just have to do whatever I say. No one's gonna believe you." So at that point, I gave up, and I was just literally counting the minutes until I could go and leave. That's actually a really good point, and I think it's something that we probably all struggle with to some extent: is that shame around. She's just trying to get attention, and mm-hmm. I know that goes through my head almost any time I walk out the door. Depending on what I'm wearing, you know, it's like, oh, everyone's just thinking I'm just trying to get attention, and it's because we spent so long, yes, trying to be seen, just wanting to be seen for who we are, you know, but living yeah. this super dishonest, shadowed life, so we can't let anybody see. So we just want them to see like the outside or whatever it is, and then we carry that with us. I'm probably just doing this because I want attention, you know, and it's such a bad thing, you know, and it's like it, why don't we say it's because we want connection? Um, Absolutely. It was like too little over two and a half years ago, week before my birthday, I got sexually assaulted by a friend that I knew for a really long time, and I remember after it happening, I didn't tell anyone still And I was like, I don't want people to think that I'm saying it for attention. Look what mm-hmm. I was wearing. And I was like, and that's when it like really dawned on me. Like, this is wrong. Like, this person deserves to go to jail. And I eventually confronted them about it through text message, where they admitted to raping me. And I'm like, and I still didn't take it to someone and say, look, I actually have proof here. And that's yeah. when I had to really take a really hard look at myself and be like, how am I still doing the same stuff to myself? Yeah, that's the thing with survivors, and people always say, "Well, how come it took you so long to come out?" And it's just like, right. "Well, look at the track record. People haven't been that accepting <laughs> and being like, 'Yeah, I believe you. I'm there with you. I, I'll help you.' You know, it's it's a struggle. It's a it's a huge struggle. So when you actually yeah. start coming out, I talked about this on one of my latest YouTube videos. I was like, nobody is sitting around saying, "Hmm, how can I become a celebrity?" Oh, I know. Let me talk about my rape from my childhood. Exactly. <laughs> And you know, I faced that from my previous team too, right? Yeah. Oh, looking for fame and fortune. I'm like, I'm literally a pariah, a societal yeah. pariah. And also, okay. Yeah. <laughs> also, like, if you are trying to make money off your story, good for you. You fucking suffered. There's no shame. There's no shame at all in telling your story. And making money from it and giving back, you know, like we're doing something. We're transforming our pain into power. Of course, there's nothing wrong with making money and getting deals, whatever it is, out of your story. It's your story. You can do whatever you want with it. So we were talking about some of your earliest childhood memories. It was at the pool. Yes. Tell us a little bit more about that. What other sort of situations would you walk in on? I remember oh. one of the ace points that you got that I didn't get was witnessing the women getting hit and slapped. Yeah, absolutely. Berg was big on uh, breaking your spirit, whether you were a child or you were an adult. And my mother was a great example of that. Berg would 
force other people to beat children and he would do public punishments, public spankings, rods, shoes, rulers, whatever it is to adult women or make other people punish children in public as well. So it was a way to kind of break down the psyche and for them to realize like just utter embarrassment so that they come back as a servant to him and like just only listening to what he says out of fear of experiencing that same public punishment Uh. all over again. And that, yeah, and that's something that you- It's kind of like that movie Colonial of that like horrible cult in Chile. Yeah, the children of God is known as one of the worst- abusive, mind-controlled pedophilia cults ever, ever. I never would have known that ever. Crazy. Because they hid all of that stuff from us. So was it kind of like, did they tell you, you don't talk about anything that happens in these homes anywhere else? I was just part of it. I think it was a learned behavior from seeing other people and like seeing more outspoken people and how they would get treated and punished. It's easy in a mind-controlled cult to use one person as an example and and get everyone else to follow. So it's like, if you were talking about something, um, then you would be severely punished, beaten, or a public punishment, missing meals or something. And then everyone else around you knew that that was happening. So of course you wouldn't want that. It was self-preservation. As a child, you needed self-preservation. So you were going to do anything that you could to survive this horrendous stuff. So watching other people, my older sister is a great example. She was considered a very unruly child and I would watch her and see her get beaten and see her get abused and be like, I don't want that, you know? So children, they have different ways of reacting to abuse. They'll either act out and start abusing other people or they'll just withdraw and become very, very withdrawn. And that's how I was. I just kind of withdrew into a shell, internalized everything and released it in other ways through my nail biting or skin picking or eating food, sneaking food from the kitchen, eating butter and sugar, like anything I could get my hands on, just num, 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 so that you could somehow suppress all of the emotions and the trauma that was going on. I used to eat butter like that too. I'd go in and just eat it. So I didn't grow up in a cult, but my mom was really crazy. When she would do humility and stuff like that, I learned from my younger sister because they were always getting in trouble. She would beat them or like she had different size wooden spoons that she would get wet and like slap you in the face or Uh. grab you like this or take you into the bathroom and hold your mouth and then beat you in there for actually just literally touching something in a store. And then if you got caught stealing something, my sister got caught stealing something from the dollar store. So she made all of us, she made my sister wear a sign that says, I stole from the dollar store and go and stand outside there to be humiliated in front of people and then made us be there to experience it as well. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Silence restriction signs. Yeah. yeah. That was in in the cult too. So you wore a sign saying, do not talk to me. I'm on silence restriction. When you wear that for however long or like, do not feed me. Do not talk to me. I'm on silence restriction. I'm on punishment and, you know, until dinner or whatever. Like there was a lot of that stuff. Yeah. Humiliation in all kinds of ways. I think a big part of that too is personality. Like you're an Aquarius, you know, like my little sister mm-hmm. and very similar. It's very like you internalize everything. Super. Aquarians, they think like, whereas most people think like three to four layers deep. A lot of people think one to two layers. Aquarians, they think 10 layers deep. David yeah. Rambert is an Aquarius. Yeah. And the way that that comes out when it meets with a male ego 
is the God complex. They think so many levels deeper than other people that they generally come to these like prophetic sort of predictions or what have you. And then people start to revere them as a prophet. So yeah. Yeah. Linda Goodman famously said what the Aquarius thinks now, so will the world in 50 years. Shut up. You know, it's, it's a very, yes. Linda Goodman. (laughs) Yeah. She's, I was reading her book one time and she said that. It's just that you're such an internalizer. You're just thinking and you're thinking and then you end up thinking like several generations ahead and then you have like this whole story planned out for you, whether it's good or bad, we know. And we all heard about Berg's wonderful idea for his life and his future and everything. And he shared it with all of us. I don't know how many times Jesus was coming back while I was alive, but it started at 83, 86, 94. I mean, that shit just kept going. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Tell me about it. And then it's all like, now what? Our whole yeah. life is I wanted to ask. But it's our fault. You've been bad. Jesus decided not to come this year, like Santa yeah. Claus. <laughs> oh, another funny thing. Okay, so like we would watch these videos, they're like music videos kind of thing. And there was this song and it went like this Tell the truth. Are you wearing the magic green shirt? Tell the truth. Are you wearing the magic green shirt? So if yeah. you're like, oh, this was from one of his dreams. So if you were wearing the magic green was- shirt, you had to tell the truth all the time, which is very ironic how untruthful they wanted us all to be. But then there was the Mm -hmm. green door, which led to hell. So it's like, watch out for the green door. So very confusing. It's like, is green a good color, bad color? (laughs) What's happening here? But a um, lot of cognitive dissonance going on in the group. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, wait, so uh, I remember this story. Wasn't Davida at one point, didn't she? Wasn't all her hair falling out so she had to use special shampoo? Was that a Life of Grandpa story or was that another kid's story that we read? So she had to use special I don't know, I don't remember. Her hair was falling off and I think you kind of were envious of her because you also oh. wanted to cut your hair. You started cutting your hair or it could have been Tetchy. I think it might have been might have been. Davida. It might have been Davida and Tetchy. I don't think that story was about me, but I did cut my hair as a child. They got very upset with me. Oh, <laughs> really? That. Oh, yeah. Because it's almost like you want to make yourself ugly. Yeah, and I totally resonated with what you said, Christina. Like, as you start growing up, and I became a huge tomboy wearing baggy clothes, trying to be ugly, and and I got really tall as well. So I also stood out and I tried to like walk hunched and, you know, just to blend in. I just wanted to be like everyone else, and I never was. I was tall in like in a bunch of Latin American countries, and or I was some kind of cult celebrity going around. So it was very jarring for me to be in a situation where you're preyed on by abusive adults and then you're also preyed on by children who are kind of wanting to test you because they grew up reading stories about you and everything. So it was an interesting, I definitely resonate with that is like trying to be ugly as a way to protect yourself. And that was something I had to work on as an adult to kind of embrace my femininity and embrace my sexuality all over again, because it was my protection. It was my way to try and be like everyone else around me. So that was something that I had to relearn in my 30s. How do I want to be? Do I want to continue being, you know, not wearing makeup and being ugly and wearing baggy clothes? Or do I want to be who I am? I'm an Aquarius. I'm weird. I want to wear weird things. I want to be myself, but I just, I didn't feel like that. And that was something that I had to learn on my healing journey as well. I just recently, one month ago, healed my eczema completely. 35 Amazing. years. Amazing. 35 years of wow. having 
literally a full-time job dealing with my skin. Did a breakthrough at Master Practitioner for NLP and it has completely gone. And I... Amazing. I can't, I mean, I never thought it would ever go away. I thought it was going to be something that I always had. And I just am so grateful that it was able to clear and my skin is so soft now. It was never before. But That's now amazing. So I wanted amazing. to ask And you, now you can help others do the same. How old were you when you first like got penetrated? Hand or by a... a hand as a kid. Uh, it's just penetrated crazy. as a... Ch- three years old. Three years old. And then when were you first required yeah. to like start having okay. sex? I actually was able to in the cult from having actual sex with people because I was in a huge tomboy stage. Most of my friends in the cult, that you know, a lot of people were 14, 15, 13. I was 16 when I lost my virginity. He was 22 and I was put on partial excommunication right away. That was a no-no. <laughs> As you know, like... Yeah, so it became the rules when David Brantberg, they changed the rules and like pedophilia was an excommunicable offense. And so if you were 16, you could have sex up to 20. So imagine another fucking like cognitive dissonance mindfuck. Here you are thinking, oh my God, I'm just having sex with somebody who's like five, six years older than me or six, seven. And then you get put on the biggest punishment for six months. And then you're in punishment. Treated like a bride. While I grew up with... Yeah. Adult men just sticking. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, there's a video going around, which I won't mention, but it's basically a girl pleading not to go back to her mother because her mother's boyfriend is abusing her. And she was saying there's blood in her underwear and stuff. And that just resonated with me so much because that was me growing up. You know, I was constantly, constantly interested by a penis. But when you're three years old, Course. And an adult sticks his, his yeah. fingers in you, you, you're damaging the inside of a child. Of course. Yeah, that's what happened to me at Birdhouse House all the time growing up by adults and by teenage boys who were copying what they're doing and what they were seeing as well. Of course, yeah, that happened a lot. And then it happened with like recently I've discovered about like a lot of like incestual stuff that was happening like brothers kind of like molesting Mm -hmm. raping their sisters and yeah really really gruesome stuff i was gonna ask you so i'm just kind of trying to figure out why they separated you was it you and davida that got separated like at that Uh, age when you moved to japan me and my younger sisters were always together in Japan. My mother and my sisters were separated. And then I was raised by other people in the cult from then on out. I was no longer raised by my mother. I don't know for sure why they separated us. I have stories from my mother's side and my father's side and my from what I saw as a child. But I'm not quite sure there was a shift in leadership. And my mother was on her way to going and being leaders in other countries and kind of spreading the propaganda uh, gospel around and she was no longer going to be a part of Berg's house, but start transitioning into leadership throughout so the rest of the cult and other places four, of the world. Naturally, you leave your four-year-old. I don't know a single person who was actually raised by their parents the entire time. There was always some kind of separation or some kind of prophecy that would come down saying that it was normally a way to control, the separation yeah. way to control. If someone was acting out, they're like, guess what? We talked to the Lord and the Lord said, you need to leave and go to this other country and we're going to take your kids from you and your kids are staying here. That happened to a lot of people. 
And unfortunately, my mom had a big part in that too. You know, when she became the leader of South America, that was a lot of the stuff that she did. And I've talked to people to this day, you know, talking about how my mom made the decision to separate their family, but her family was separated from her as well. It was just all this generational trauma being passed down and passed down to everyone. You know, there were people were doing the same things to others that were doing to them. So it continued on through the lines all the way down to children. And so what was your relationship like? Like, what was your attachment back then to your mom and to your dad? And then how did, was it different? Did you lose respect for your mom when you saw her being beat? Or like, were you afraid of her? Did you just like, what was the connection there? I was definitely afraid of my mom. She was very physically abusive to me and my sister. And I'd never had like actual mother-daughter thing. She was this woman who was giving birth to children and she was my mom, but she would also beat me horrendously um, as a child. Uh, And I kind of gravitated towards my father, who was a bit more quiet. He rarely spanked me. And I knew that if he did, it would be like a very small tap on the leg, which, you know, you're like, as a child, you're like, yes, I got out of that spanking, you know, any any way that you could. Now, I was the, yeah, I was afraid of my mom and I was raised by other people. They were with me in the Philippines as well. So it wasn't a huge transition to go with them. It was shocking or explained anything to you as a child in the cult. It was just like, pack your things, we're leaving tonight. And you're like, what? Then you're like, oh, we're leaving tonight. We're playing tomorrow. Your mom's not coming or, you know, you're moving to this home and your mom's staying in this home. Okay, were but you, you get Davida? used to it as a child. Like, you don't know any... Were you in Davida close? There's the seven-year age gap. It was very, very hard to, to be close to her. She experienced a lot of other things that I did not. And I experienced a lot of things she did not. So with the seven-year age gap, she immediately in Brazil and in Japan was taken into the older kids' home. She was born in the 70s. I was born in the 80s. Um, there's a lot of things that happen in between. So we were not given the opportunity to be close as sisters. And then you were separated also from your younger sisters. No, never. Oh, you never were. Okay. We were kept together. Yeah. Do you have any questions about this time period before we go to Brazil? Brazil followed Japan, right? Mm -hmm. When you're, I can go back and tell you about Berg's ring. The ring. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Also, from the time that she was in your mom's womb, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah Christina doesn't know about that part, about how it basically, like, um, she, I'll tell you. Yeah, in Berg's house, he had his testing things on us to see, like, what would and what wouldn't work as far as control for children. And one of those things was child brides and child marriage, pedophilia, as we all know, it's well-documented in the cult. After my third birthday, my mom took me, it was very exciting. I got dressed up and everything. And she took me to Berg's special house, the Swiss chalet, the little cabin on the side of the property. This was a house you go to invitation only. You can't just walk over to the house and say hello. So it was considered like a great honor when you were brought to Berg's house. And she came in, Berg was sitting on a chair in the living room and she sat me on on his lap. I didn't really know what was going on. Berg 
gave this whole spiel about, you know, how I'm like his little love bug and Mary dear. He named me after his mother's niece that he was in love with. That's how I got my name. I was promised to him before birth. He named me before I was born. So this, you know, naturally followed. It was like I was promised to him. You know, my mother gave me to him, literally gave me to him. And he took out a ring. It was, I was three years old and it was too big for my finger. And, and he said, well, we'll wrap tape around the, the band so that it will fit. And as you grow, you take the tape off so that you'll always have a piece of me with you. Then he said that I was going to be his. I was his lover, his child bride. He couldn't wait for me to get older. You know, he kissed me on the mouth. He stunk. He was an alcoholic. I didn't realize what the smell was as a child, but when I started smelling alcohol or like old alcohol as an adult, I'd get a little jerky and I started connecting that it was this alcohol smell. On his breath, he was a dirty man. He had a white stained yellow beard. He wore nasty shirts that were always open and, and just underwear, floppy boxers. And, and he was um, like in his 70s? Yeah. This was when he was in his 60s. 60s. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then he gave me, he gave me a ring and it was considered a very beautiful moment, a, a great honor. Uh, my mom was all excited. Everyone thought it was so beautiful. There were other people around and I was just kind of like, what everyone was so excited. And as a child, I didn't understand what was so exciting about sitting on this dirty old man's <laughs> lap, getting kissed by him, receiving a ring. And I just thank the gods all the time that I didn't grow up in the cult because most definitely I would have experienced extreme uh, sexual abuse by Berg as other people did who were older, who received the rings. These children. Do you know about how many kids received the ring? There's at least four others that are all way older than me. Four he other wasn't females. around that many people. Like he had the core family, right? right? So he wasn't exposed as, as I'm yeah. sure he wished he could have been to more yeah. kids. He sent for other girls from other homes to go through this teen training, as it was called. And then this type of teen training was then implemented in other communes for all the other teenagers later on. But he experimented on other children to see what would and wouldn't work. So yes, there are other people that have this ring. I've spoken to them and we all have the same ring. It's a heart with hands about holding it, which means Berg is holding our heart he's holding my heart the, i will always celtic, speak for myself but it, is it the celtic one the celtic yeah hands the heart where like you face it a certain way you're taken and the other way you're not you face it a certain way yeah yeah do you still have it typical berg to to i do still have it whoa holy shit Oh my God. Okay. So the picture is on my Instagram of the ring. I put it on my adult thing. It fits on my pinky finger. I put it on just to show, you know, how disgusting this was, you know, this grooming. He put a lot of thought into how he could possess me for the rest of his life and how I would belong to him and how this ring would fit me as a three-year-old up until an adult, you know, it's what sick, you, but what um, made you keep it all these years? I always knew that I would tell my story at some point and it's kind of a way to prove to myself and possibly to others that, you know, I have this. And the fact that other people have kept this ring as well is surprising to me, but not that I'm happy that they have it, but I'm also like, wow, this really did happen. And other people will back this up because we all have the same ring and we've all kept it for some reason. And for me, it's, 
it's a it's power it's not his ring it's my ring and i'm using it to tell my story and i'm using it to help others and i'm using it to empower myself and it's almost like a talisman against him and the power that he once held over me well now i'm holding the power and he doesn't have it anymore and that's this ring is a symbolism of that wow is he dead he's dead he died in 1993 or 4 94 or 95 i don't remember What was it like to go to these other homes where people like me and everybody else, I mean, we thought he was our grandpa, like he was our grandpa and we loved reading Life of Grandpas, Now I Can Be Told, like all of that stuff until I left the family. I refused to watch anything negative about the group. I didn't watch the documentary about the children of God until a couple of months ago because I didn't want to think of it as that because that's what they told us. It's just the system propaganda. It's our detractors is how they would call them and the antagonists that are spreading these vicious lies. And they had burned all of the publications that Serena is talking about where there was always the very wrongdoings going on with the children. And I just refused to believe it. Refused until... Yeah. Finally, I went through this whole process and the journey, which Serena also did one as well. We'll probably go into that later. But until I finally saw that documentary, it was just like, it was so therapeutic for me to finally be able to see and accept how things were, that they were fucked up. It just took up so much weight off of me because I was like, I'm the fucked up one. I grew up in this great paradise environment where people loved each other and supported each other. So I'm a sociopath, basically. Yeah, brainwashing at its finest, for sure. Because that's where we had no other way. We were completely separated from the real world. We had no other way to experience life until we were around other children. Like, oh, well, that's look at their disease and they're poor and blah, blah, blah. There was always some way to, it was a fear tactic. It was all, the entire group was based on fear and the religion was based on fear. Everything was based around fear. So it's like, you got sick, it was your fault the Lord was punishing you or this person. My sister was used as a huge example, you know, pray against her. She's a demon. She's an evil spirit. She's a Vandari. That was kind of my breaking point. Yeah, that was an evil spirit name. They came up with all sorts of names for for people. Yeah, I just remembered the Selvagen. The Selvagen were the demons of division and there were lots of them and they call out over you and whisper Uh, like divisive words. I was uh, always under the attack of the salvages. That was after my time. I just had Vandari and I'm like, I'm out. Nope. <laughs> not praying against my older sister. Not doing it. Nope. Oh my God. Yeah. That's yeah, what it was like with me and my older sister because we got kicked out of homes because of her every six months because she was just a smart teenager who would ask questions. That was yeah. literally it. Yeah. And I don't quite remember your question, but I believe it had to do with how it was coming into homes and seeing everyone talk about grandpa and to me like like, yeah to me he literally was my grandpa I knew him personally he'd come in give me a hug blah 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 you know but then he was this really crazy scary figure who would drink a lot of wine and scream and shout and we'd have these four-hour meetings that ended up in cult publications about his latest dreams that he had or something and I saw things in a very different way especially going to Brazil in homes I was able to see a lot more kids and be around a lot more children I wasn't only secluded with my sisters I was in groups people were talking about me I was still lying about who I was 
because there's a specific memory where we're reading a story in the life of grandpa about me, about Mary Dear. And one of the kids raised their hands and they said, Uncle James, who was teaching the class, like they were like, how old would Mary Dear be right now? And this adult said, let me think. Um, she was born in 1983. So do, do, do. she would be six years old, the same age as you, Serena. And I had to sit there and go, oh, ha, 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 how cool. Oh, how funny. Mary Dear's the same age as me. And everyone was like, oh, wow, Mary Dear's the same age as Serena. And I literally learned by that time how to lie about myself. And that was me the rest of my life, really. Which is so sad because it's already a tendency of Aquarians. Yeah. Like, you don't know the real Aquarian. They're like, there are 10 yeah. layers in there. And you're just yeah. seeing a couple of the first, like, facade. So they already naturally yeah. towards being reclusive or just covering themselves, hiding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so venting on that, I mean, that's hard to get over. What areas do you struggle still being, like, open about and transparent about? When people ask me what I do, I'm a trauma recovery coach. Why? That's normally the next question. Like, wow, you know, we thought you were going to be like, I'm a manager at so-and-so office, you know, like how I used to. And I struggled just until last year, really, about telling the truth about what I really did because it was so easy for me to go back into my corporate life and say, oh, I'm a customer service manager for a gaming company, blah, blah, blah. Instead of saying, I'm a trauma recovery coach. And people say, wow, how did you get into that? And it's like, fuck. Now I have to tell the truth. <laughs> Do you want to zoom forward a little bit? So I reconnected with Serena not too long ago. It must have been about a year and a half ago. Still totally not having any clue how to unlock my mind or get in there. So all my efforts focusing externally, but you know, still trying to like get in alignment and stuff like that. So Serena and I would meet and we would exchange, you know, stories of what was happening. And, you know, I'd mentioned wanting to try ayahuasca. I was experimenting with some, some psilocybin and mushrooms and stuff like that. And Serena had it. She was like, you were really trepidatious about that, right? I wasn't into it. Yeah, I just, it seemed like a little culty to me. And, you know, when you're on a healing journey, you from have to cult. be careful. Yeah, from a cult. The yeah. last thing you want to do is go back into <laughs> another cult. I did end up trying it, which I did tell you about eventually. But for a long time, I was still in very much in the mindset that I can help myself and I don't need anyone else to help, which is true. Like we have the power in ourselves to heal, but there's faster ways to get there. And you can heal faster with using other substances, using plant medicine in particular, and having guided journeys and things that just helps you get to the place where you want to go faster. At the time, I was pretty adamant about doing it myself. We reconnected when I was a health coach. I was still a little bit in denial about talking about my life and I just didn't want to go there. You know, it's it's hard because I knew like once I started talking about my life, it was going to be out there. I can't take it back. I can't go back. I have to commit to it. And I wasn't quite ready to well, do that. And, and that was also because you had been on the spotlight recently or not yeah. that far ago and, and had received some major negative feedback, right? From like Davida and like all yeah. like you had seen the wreckage basically that it could cause. Light was shown on it. Yeah, absolutely. And that was my biggest fear and it came true. But I did some plant medicine ceremonies, which really helped me at that time. It kind of helped me get the courage and I was able to reconnect with some other people that 
were able to encourage me and support me when I did go through a really hard time in speaking about my past. But I learned so much from that because I realized I'm not going to resonate with everyone. Not everyone's going to agree with me. And everyone has opinions about how you should live your life and what you should do. And that's fine. They can have that, you know, but I'm not going to be quiet. I'm not going to shut up. I'm not going to stop talking about my story. So if people are uncomfortable, they don't have to listen to me. But it was so important for me to learn how to acknowledge other people's pain and learn how to tell only my story and not go off into, oh, well, this happened to my sister and this happened. And a lot of our stories intertwine, but I'm trying my best to just stick to my story. And I think that's very important because that's something that wasn't given to me. My story was told by a lot of other people. And that's why I had so much fear about coming out because there was so much out already about me. I was just like, ah, I just want to bury my head in the sand, not deal with it anymore. But it was something that had to be done. And yes, I received backlash, but I also received a lot more support and a lot more deeper Mm -hmm. connections with friends like you who are on similar paths. So that's just part of the journey and part of the growing process. Yeah, exactly. And then not to mention that there is a gigantic group of which, you know, people that we know and are related to are a part of, which is just this big group of very, very angry, very bitter ex-members who are still living very much in victimhood, who do not want to move on because they have so intertwined themselves with the identity of abuse and being fucked up and literally cannot progress in their lives. And so they want to take people who like us who are speaking out, you know, and they want to keep us in this very victim negative frame of mind. And so when we start going towards the positive, because I think Serena and I share the same value in that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and we're able to see all of the different things and experiences that we went through that actually put us where we are today. Because you cannot face such massive adversity matched with resilience and not accomplish these unhuman feats, right? Like we have the power within us to do superhuman things because of what we've went through. And if we hold on to this I was abused, 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 abused. You're not going to get anywhere in life. You're going to be dependent on other people. And so that is a challenge that you and I have to face as well is to be like, actually, there's a happy ending. There is light at the end of the tunnel and you can use this to create the life of your dreams. Yeah, but also... And this is something I learned in my experience where a lot of ex-members were attacking me. Some people don't want to heal and that's okay. They just want to stay where they are. They don't want to deal with their life. And that's fine. They can do that, you know? And that was something that was very important for me to acknowledge for them. I don't need to be a beacon of light and be like, you all are stuck in victimhood and I've seen the light. Everyone follow me because now I'm just a cult leader. So it was important for me to learn. And I'm so grateful that I was able to go through that intense experience because I was able to acknowledge that, yes, it's okay. People don't want to heal. That's their decision. And I fully support, I'll always support my fellow ex-members and it doesn't matter what they're doing if they want to stay where they are and that's fine. And that's everyone's choice and everyone's just doing the best that they can. Yeah, that's so true. So growing up, feeling uncomfortable, what other things did your subconscious mind do to keep you safe? Writing. I grew up making up stories about my life. 
And I would write them as in the cult, we were all raised by other kids. We never really had schooling. We learned addition and sometimes tables. And that was it. By the time you're 12, you're like, okay, you're going to take care of all the younger kids now. So I was taking care of children when I was 11, 12 years old. And I created this character called Sally. And she basically just lived in my own world, in my head. I drew pictures of her. And when I would take care of the kids that were younger than me, mind you, they were six and I'm 12 or 11. So it's really not that much. I'd draw stories about this character named Sally who lived in this beautiful world. And she just had all these opportunities and she rode horses and unicorns. And it was a way to get out of my head, out of these experiences. And I've had these children who are now grown from Brazil tell me like that actually really helped them in their own childhood as well, being able to escape. I'm not even in this world. I'm halfway out and I was able to write stories and draw stories to escape from my childhood. That was the main thing. So you're artistic too? Oh, it was horrible art. (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. No, seriously, story time was one of my saviors as well. Like, because my mom would always put on story time tapes when we would go to sleep. I had a very different experience with my mom. My mom was a very loving, sweet woman and very nurturing. Thank God, you know, and I, because we just had one mom and, and lots of bad situations with lots of bad uncles and aunties. Right. Yeah. So she was, my mother was actually my saving grace, but she would play these story time tapes. And I just remember loving because it was like about Clara Barton and Joan of Arc and um, Corey Ten Boom. Yeah. Corey Ten Boom. She was my favorite. Exactly. Oh my God. And so it just gave you this sense of like survival. I can do this, you know, like, because it was all about trials and tribulations and then this, you know, overcoming and then the whole hero's journey. I mean, it was just the hero's journey replayed and replayed over and over, which just always instilled within me like this sense of purpose and Mm. like life. And I loved it to this day. I mean, that's the premise of our podcast is like storytelling because I believe that the biggest impacts come through parables, through anecdotes. That's all religion knows that, you know, absolutely parables and it's such a powerful tool so if you're a good storyteller there's no limit your subconscious mind can't tell the difference between a story and it gets past the critical faculty and then it will relate it to its own life so it's the reason why they work so well if you tell someone what to do it's not going to work but if you tell them a story that's similar to who they are then it's more likely that the unconscious mind is going to follow that yeah exactly And being in nature, I was so lucky that I was able to be raised in Brazil in the mountains and the beaches and so much, so much beautiful nature. And to this day, that's kind of like my drugs. Each person has a drug. And if I'm not out in nature, like literally out in nature, you've seen me hiking all over the place, not just sitting outside, but actually going out. Like it just, it refreshes me. It makes me feel safe and connected. And that's something that I always had as a child in Brazil. And I'm so grateful that I was able to be around that and not raised in a city or something like a lot of other kids were. Oh yeah. So how many years were you in Brazil altogether? Eight and a half. So at one point in time, I think it might've been 1994 or five when they elicited these raids Mm -hmm. in Argentina, France, and Australia. And the government came in it was a big sting operation. Our mutual friend, Rachel, remembers, you know, them pointing guns at them, you know, coming yeah. and taking them in the middle of the night. So super yeah. scary. So were you in Brazil while that was happening? I and- was. 
I met a lot of the children who had left Argentina, fled. fled. They were literally fleeing from the authorities. And I met a lot of the kids who had fled and I spoke to them a lot. I wasn't involved. I always heard about it. And again, there was a lot of fear, like they're going to take you away from your parents. And this is the only life, you know. So you're like, oh, I hate the police. I hate the authorities. I'm going to lie. You know, they're the devil and everything. That happened. Brazil wasn't really affected. I had to flee with my family several times in the middle of the night in Brazil from different homes because police were coming to that house to check it out. And because I was considered top secret, say law, cult celebrity my entire life, me and my family, we were always like the first to go. We were always the first to leave from any house, constantly fleeing from the authorities. 